0: Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. I'm A. Maria. In today's episode, Schools, Prisons, and Abolitionist Futures, we explore the parallels by which the institutions of prisons and schools work to reproduce our current society, racial capitalism, and how they illuminate challenges in Iraqi passageways toward abolition. We speak with imprisoned intellectual, Harold H.H. H. Gonzalez about the history of school segregation and the construction of the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. We also hear from Erica Miners, who discusses how schools are embedded in carceral regimes and encourages us to view them through the wider lens of abolitionist struggle. We conclude the episode with imprisoned artist Stephen Hibbler on how the policing and criminalization of black and brown youth prefigure the racist carceral logic of our society. But first, here's Cave Sayed with some news you may have missed.
1: On August 10th, Republicans in the U.S. Senate proposed a bill that would greatly ramp up the mass surveillance on the U.S. border. The bill, if passed, would increase Customs and Border Patrol agents, increase the collection and storage of biometric data, and increase the installation and utilization of drones along the border, among a host of other assaults to the dignity of immigrants. On August 7th, six inmates at a maximum security prison in Tucker, Arkansas, snatched keys from three correctional officers and held those officers for three hours. According to the Arkansas Department of Corrections, the inmates had overpowered the officers during a recreational call. The officers were eventually released with minor injuries and an inmate not involved initially was sent to the hospital. The inmates who overpowered the guards have been sent to a different facility or facilities, although their whereabouts are as of yet unknown to the public. This is the second disturbance at this prison this month. This August is a month of action on behalf of Kai Peterson, an incarcerated black transgender man who back in 2011, was arrested in Georgia for killing his rapist in self-defense. Kai has been sentenced to 20 years for involuntary manslaughter, 10 years more than what the state of Georgia mandates. Although all the evidence, including rape kits, have shown incontrovertible evidence in Kai's favor, and that Kai should have been protected under Georgia's standard ground laws, the racist, transphobic system we live in has made Kai a victim multiple times over. Kai is calling for a Right the Governor campaign and petition from now until the end of 2017, calling for Kai's release please go to freeingkai.com that is freeingky.com to participate in this campaign and support Kai Peterson check out news from the streets at rustbeltradio.org for more on these news items
0: I'm here with Alejo Stark and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan
2: In what ways does our current educational system reproduce, rather than solve, the problems created by racial capitalism? And how do we struggle toward a liberatory school system, rather than one which contains and represses us? These are the kinds of questions abolitionists ask. I interviewed abolitionist intellectual Harold H.H. Gonzalez, currently in prison at Michigan's Barragas Correctional Facility, about the ways in which our current educational system isn't necessarily broken, but rather is working precisely the way it was intended to reproduce the anti-black and white supremacist capitalist order. HH traces the history of the so-called school-to-prison pipeline and attempts to chart a way out of it.
3: In the discussion concerning the pipeline from schools to prison, we have to go back to the Brown versus the Board of Education 1954 decision on desegregation. You see, the psychological effects of prolonged conditioning in either white supremacy or racial inequality allows you to see that this was not a victory for the disenfranchised. It was the beginning of a panic-propagated journey to mass incarceration. While carceral machinery had its beginnings that predates the 1954 decision, the ability to inspire and accelerated the agenda was made possible by this decision. The long-conditioned mindset of supremacy was deeply offended at the thought of these inferior people coexisting with their children. So they began the machinations to circumvent the decision. It was basically simple. Gentrification. Gentrification easily took care of the desegregation. And with the legislation that funding would be based on property tax, they literally instituted resegregation and second-class schools at the same time. The basic concept of education is to produce first-class productive citizens and thereby a better society. And if that is the case, then the design system of machinery that is meant to retard the development tells the true story of education. Most people concentrate on the issues by trying to call attention to the disparities that they are not known when they should be focusing on the true design of the policy behind current educational system. They are not denying us an education. They've designed a different one for us. Remember, scholastics were never intended for us. And through the commodifying of education, still isn't. But if this is true, then you ask, what education do they desire for us? Well, basically, the education of the black man in America has been debated and talked about from every angle concerning the disproportionate funds, the underpaid teachers, and the outdated books and the overwhelming neglect that is the order of the date in regards to the people living the black experience in America. I use the phrase black experience with a very emphatic connotation that is relevant to this topic specifically. You see, while most use the term black as a nomenclature to lightly describe the African phenotype in America as if it is no big deal, they are actually accepting and designating a status that causes the stigma to be placed on themselves and others. This designation equates to the experiences of the so-called blacks in America. And a status... Or class that through time and consistency, along with imagery and politics, combined with a disenfranchised mind state that is consistently enforced simply by phases of society to show that it doesn't exist, basically tells the real story of the education of the so-called blacks in America. You see why the status of scholastic disproportionately favors the rich and well-off who happen to consist majority of the so-called whites in America, let's not get it twisted. Those living the black experience in America are receiving the education desire to produce the sought-after contribution, engineered for their status. They are being educated to become the fuel for the machine that is the prison industrial complex. The sad, simple, and psychological programming for those living the black experience in America is accepted that prison is a natural part of the so-called black's life in America. It has become cultural in its relevance, and if it's cultural, it's taught wittingly or unwittingly from the earliest beginnings of comprehension. Let me see if I can get you to visualize this concept. The soul of America is so deeply ingratiated in racism or white power that the protection of the status is innately in so-called white America. A fact proven by how easily Trump was able to manipulate the electoral college using the let's make America great again rhetoric, which really meant let's make America white in power again. But just as ingratiated as the concept of white rule is in white America, so too is the concept of a design to oppress those living the black experience in America and the souls of the so-called blacks in America. The propagation of both concepts have their independent and disastrous effects, creating psychosis harmful to both, but for very different reasons. For those living in black experience, it is the underlying foundation of our education that more than not leads to graduation into the prison-industrial complex. For those living in black experience in America, subtly or forcefully, wittily or unwillingly, raise their children to rage against the machine to become revolutionaries in a fight for their liberation, to not trust the man that the world they live in is geared against them. And with the imagery, tone and the failure to see concrete consistent evidence to the contrary they unwittingly move to the next grade while they still may not comprehend completely they feel the pain of the perception they watch black youth get gunned down disproportionately by what they view as a form of government then acquitted or protected by another it sends a message it teaches it educates in the desired curriculum that of no matter what you do we don't value your life to the point where it merits humane consideration that says hey don't believe the hype Black presidential propaganda to the contrary. We will never let you rise to the level of equal. This message is emphatically driven home by the lack of change. They hear hate crime. They hear the message that it would be severely punished and then see it overlooked when it comes to the killing of their kind. This being the case, the black youth then develops a polarized vision, one that is strict in its interpretation, one that even in the face of an historical landmark like a black president, they know that it doesn't mean anything in regards to the soul of this nation. So in this fear of perception, the black youth's dreams and hopes are to get rich, that money equals respect, that even if the soul of America is determined to prevent my ascension to the level of equal, wealth at least will make them pretend they do, and surely it will offer a form of protection for me and mine. Here he passes to the next grade. So now we have a black youth educated to believe in the pursuit of the almighty dollar as a means of becoming equal, and as tragic as that concept is, for the majority of black youth, it is the one hope they have. To be seen as equal. Seriously take a moment to really comprehend the sadness of that plight. Now this youth see, the established educational system that we must remember was never meant for him, a perception clearly enforced by the aforementioned disproportionality of it, and his dreams are diminished further. His hope now is reduced to basically three categories, athlete, rapper-singer, or baller. For those who may not be botanically inclined, the baller is someone who got rich off selling drugs, and here is where the black youth passed into his engineered high school. No matter his age, when he reaches this stage of development, he is preparing for his design college education. Now, these categories being the required classes, the youth now believes, through a clearly engineered perception, that he must choose one. And with so many people trying to athlete and rapper, singer, rapper, and the percentages of those who make it being so low, he has been educated to believe his, he only has one option. And here I will show you a unique perception. For this youth now has reached a mind state that is not just about being rich. He is not disillusioned. He knows that there's a high probability that he will get caught. But his life has led him to a point where that is an acceptable outcome. He now also sees himself as a revolutionary to a degree. In the sense that he knows that his current path will lead to a conflict with the governing body. But knows now also that this was the desire design his whole life. To have to struggle for equality. To have his option limited to the point where they became leading. To pursue riches. To have a measure of protection just to have a semblance of being equal. And in that pursuit, in whatever category he chooses, inevitably come in conflict with the police so he can receive his degree, a number, that will forever make him a part of the prison industrial complex. He has now reached the college design for him, where his design career is impressed in his psyche. You can read more about that in a piece I wrote entitled Let Us Make Man in Our Image and part two to it in another piece entitled The New Willie Lynch Era where they explain the final steps in educating the so-called black man in the mirror. Some may believe I'm being too extreme in my thinking on this matter, but I'm not on the outside looking in. I'm on the inside looking out. I've been a part of all the design educational programs for black youth, from foster care to boys' homes, and finally the prison industrial conflict, and wondering how, with all the attention gained by police shooters, with the clear racist agenda pouring from our current leadership, With all the intellectual mind discussing the issues of black lives and how they matter, how can right under our noses this current system of education be allowed to flourish? In order to destroy the machine that is the prison industrial complex, we must destroy its machinations. And they are designs behind the real education of those living the black experience in America. Experience molds. Experience creates thought patterns which make belief systems that accumulatively produce a man. Control the experiences and you produce whatever kind of man you desire. We must influence the experiences of our youth. Even if society's souls remains tainted by megalomania, our youth must consistently, clearly, and dominantly experience a shroud of protection against the desired form of education that those afraid of him are trying to force on him, so that his courage be increased to dare to do wondrous things. Thank you for allowing me to share my views and opinions on this issue. I hope I inspire just one more person to join in the fight to end this carceral machinery, this prison industrial complex. Thank you.
0: Co-producer Andres spoke with Erica Miners, professor at Northeastern Illinois University and co-founder of Sister Jean Hughes Adult High School, an alternative high school for people who have been incarcerated. She's the author of Right to be Hostile, School, Prisons, and the Making of Public Enemies, and For the Children, Protecting Innocence in a Carceral State. Erica opens by describing a moment in which she began to move from a schools-not-prisons line of political argument towards a more expansive critique of carcerality, one that doesn't rely on conventional notions of childhood and innocence. As
4: somebody who is deeply impacted by communities, teachers, parents, young folks organizing to make schools more just, you know, getting police out of schools, getting disciplinary policies changed, I mean, there was a point where I was at yet another educate, not incarcerate counselor. Not cost books, not bars, rally, and looking around and chanting. I'm sure holding a sign. I'm I'm sure. It struck me that there was something missing. There was some kind of a a piece that needed. There there was something missing in the work, and marked sort of more deeply in the analysis. That it seemed to me that. You know, we were lifting up in our work, in our, you know, Books Not Bars work, our counselors Not Cops work, we were lifting up sort of the person to be to be privileged was the student, was the young person who was in school, the, the child, you know, as a, as a proxy. And it made me sort of feel, you know, kind of a little bit nervous and uncomfortable, in particular as somebody who works at a high school for people coming out of prisons and jails with folks that are 30, uh, also with serving long-term sentences or death by incarceration, you know, at a maximum security prison who are in their 40s and also want to learn. And I felt like while I was at those, well, not bars, rallies that were privileging the child, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, made me really think critically about how those campaigns for liberation for young people, those movements against the school, to prison pipeline, actually reinforce the logic. You know, both sometimes explicitly and sometimes less explicitly, that would actually do harm to some of the other types of communities that I'm a part of. If we only think children are worth saving, then what about people who have done harm that are 33 or 44? What about at a public university, post-secondary education for working-class people? I mean, don't those folks deserve access to free tuition and lifelong learning opportunities?
2: In 2000, you helped start an alternative high school for people who were formerly incarcerated. Can you talk a bit about how the project started and what the school does?
4: It's almost 20 years now. A bunch of us who had been to at Cook County Jail and sort of got escorted out of there for a range of reasons. In consultation with uh, folks inside, we were trying to figure out what we could do to be of use to quote the poet in March piercing. 60% of the folks inside prisons haven't earned a high school diploma or a GED. And one of the significant barriers towards academic or economic mobility is the lack of that piece the paper. And folks want access to that. Also folks want access to learning for the same reason that everybody wants access to learning. It rocked my world, changed my world. So we started a high school program on the west side of Chicago in a church basement, and folks Come the program through word of mouth. About thirty to forty people have the opportunity to earn a high school diploma every year. We could award many more of those. We have many people that want to be in the program, but we've kept, deliberately kept the program small and rich and meaningful and one-on-one in part because we find that that's what people want and need, and that we need more of these kinds of little initiatives, not just a really big version of, uh, of this one project. Folks take classes at night and are coming out of directly from prisons and jails in some cases, or some folks have been working in what I like to call the professional prisoner reentry industry and want to change jobs or go back to college or have the same reasons that anybody goes to school. And I'll just come back to that point about being a stronger abolitionist. But for me, that work Continues to sharpen my awareness and understanding of the ways in which incarceration in the United States, policing and punishment is a racial project. 80% of the students in our classes and our staff and faculty also include folks that are formerly incarcerated are African American. And looking at the ways in which the consequences of incarceration certainly do not end when people are released from prisons or jails, and the ways in which other practices, other state practices, like child and welfare services, like policing, are also part of the ongoing collateral consequences of being locked up. And also that the ways in which people's families, communities, neighborhoods are really conscripted and part of the prison industrial complex. An abolitionist analysis helps us to kind of connect all these spaces and sites and do this work. Can
2: you talk about the movement that's grown around this metaphor, the school-to-prison pipeline, and how an abolitionist analysis pushes us to see more broadly?
4: I think it's always important to acknowledge where the movement came from and the people that did the work, and that often it's the folks most impacted that are building the analysis needed in the moment and building the movement. So for this, I just want to start out by lifting up Communities of color, young people, parents in particular, that were just sick and tired of watching young folks of color being suspended in an elementary school. So I think that that analysis came largely out of those movements of seeing this relationship between criminalization, communities of color, and low-income communities of color, and education. So I think that that term "school-to-prison pipeline," which still I think has a lot of traction as a metaphor, as a organizing, kind of galvanizing image. It comes from those kind of contexts. But having said that, I think it's really important when Obama and Ernie Duncan, start previous Secretary of Education, start using that language to kind of say, okay, we've lost something here. (laughs) Is this really helping us get towards more liberation, or is this really giving the state more tools to kind of manage us and control us? And so I think that stepping back and having an abolitionist analysis is really key. And an abolitionist analysis reminds us a couple of things. One, that education has always been a part of a prison industrial complex in the United States. Education has always been a part of sorting and sifting populations towards the employment available after full white employment. Education has always been a racial project, from the residential boarding schools to these segregated schools still today, education has always been about creating particular kinds of norms around gender and sexuality. So I think that an abolitionist analysis allows us to kind of place public schooling in this wider trajectory. I think it's also important to remind ourselves that education itself has a liberatory history as well. It kind of adds a radical abolitionist trajectory as well. In addition to sort of historicizing, or thinking historically about the ways in which education has been used to criminalize or manage populations, I think an abolitionist analysis also is key because it reminds us that schools are not separate from communities, and that doing things like fixing school disciplinary policies, which is important, right, or getting cops out of schools, which is important, or making sure that curriculum in schools and people who teach in schools actually have some resemblance and connections to the young people and the communities that are represented in the classroom, right, that's important. But that's not enough, and that we can't really just carve off schools as somehow separated from, you know, the ways in which policing happens in black and brown communities in the United States or the ways in which resources are allocated in states for, for public schools so that whiter and wealthier communities get many more resources than low-income, predominantly brown and black communities. So I think an abolitionist analysis is really pushing us to say, of course, changing these policies in schools and the campaigns around that matter. But let's use a liberatory logic in those campaigns. And let's also make sure that we're not in those campaigns somehow fixing the child, the student, and the school as somehow better, important, more somehow neutral sites and spaces than the very communities, the parents, you know, the neighborhoods that surround those schools. So we also need to stop, you know, get these blue light surveillance cameras out of neighborhoods. We also need to make sure that neighborhoods aren't food deserts, employment deserts, art deserts. We need to make sure that you know, the parents of the young people in our schools aren't working full-time jobs that is punishing with no, not a living wage. So part of an abolitionist analysis reminds us there's a wider lens to this carceral logic, this carceral regime, and schools are embedded in that. And they're an important side of struggle, but they also need to be connected to all these other webs, which can kind of seem daunting sometimes, but I like to think about it as a comrade, as a, like a whack-a-mole game. Like, it's really important to fight the bad policy you know, when it comes up in schools, but equally as important is to be challenging the underlying logics that make that bad policy possible. Otherwise, you're just you know, doing the whack-a-mole thing all the time, which I think We need to be doing site-specific or specific kinds of campaigns to work. But as we're doing that, right, as we're trying to get the cops out of schools, it's not that cops in our neighborhoods are any better. (laughs) It's not that, you know, um, that the neighborhood around that school isn't also uh, hyper-racialized policing practices are in that neighborhood. So, you know, we can't do everything at one time, but we want to be intentional in our school-specific campaigns that we're not saying, this child, this middle schooler is somehow merits resources we should be organizing for a safer school for this middle school because middle schoolers are so important and wonderful. Well, so are their parents. So is their aunt who doesn't have kids. So we need to be kind of being smarter and more intentional in the kind of campaigns and the underlying logic so we can both get that bad policy dismantled, but we can also build community and coalitions along the way, and we can also make visible and challenge the logics, which are usually deeply racialized, people uh, uh you know, the logics that are making that policy possible. I'm super excited for this radio show and for its capacity to create radical, imaginary abolitionist practices across
2: the U.S. and beyond. We close with Stephen Hibbler, a writer and artist currently imprisoned at the Macomb Correctional Facility in New Haven, Michigan. Steve talks about repressive school environments and discusses the ways in which selective criminalization is internalized by black and brown children who experience disproportionate contact with the police.
5: I went to a school that, as soon as we walked in, we had metal detectors, you know, we had uh, armed security guards standing at the door we had people just shaking us down and patting us down and things of that nature like things i wasn't used to not knowing that this was working on my subconscious and preparing me to be uh, going through the same process in prison i think the environment shapes thought and i think if, if the children going to school is in place in an environment that is similar to prison then they i their behavior is going to uh reflect that that type of environment i think it, it hinders or, or plays on that person's behavior or their perception of reality. And by Michigan having a zero-tolerance policy, you get expelled, suspended for just the minor offenses. This is ridiculous. I mean, I think that's setting a child up immediately to be come straight to prison. As we know, the criminal justice system is disproportionately blacks and Latinos is being funneled through this system. And that, as you can see, the, the Michigan debauching policy is targeted African-Americans and Latinos the most, where there's a, a white student and a black student create the same offense in in a classroom, although the the white students' parents might get called, the black students get expelled or uh, suspended for a longer period of time. You know, when you're dealing with individuals who, children whose self-esteem is already low, who, like you said, grew up in these impoverished communities, where classrooms are overcrowded and underfunded schools, you know, these things really play play plays a big part. Wow, go figure, huh? Like these, these, these schools really plays a big part. So our question, one of our questions was, when these children are funneled through the system, let's say if a child is going through the juvenile justice system, and the juvenile justice system is, isn't set up with programs to help the child with the underlying behavioral p- problem, the juvenile justice system is just set up to, to somewhat, just like prisons, to warehouse the students and send them right back into society worse than they were when they came through the juvenile justice system. You know, and a lot of times it, it, it traumatized them, you know, because things that goes on in here is unfathomable to the public. Reality is reality. We know through statistics that black boys have contact with the police, like just walking down the street. Statistics also show that some children begin their journey down the cradle to prison pipeline even before they birth, especially if you have as a boy born with brown skin in the United States. Harvey, your increase increases and chances to deal with the police is, is, is increases. I can be walking down the street, police walk by, it's like a degree of suspicion is already attached to me, just because of my, my brown skin. That's, that's contact. I'm thinking, in my mind, like, is this normal? You know, from riding in a car, young black boys have this protocol already made up in their head. If you ride more than two individuals in a car, and three people in a car, well, the first thing we say if the police get behind us is, don't turn around. Because we know immediately that they're going to pull us directly over. And sometimes if they pull up on the side of us and know their feet, uh, there's more than two black guys in the car. They're going to pull us over. So that's contact. And so all these things plays on the individual psyche to the point where this becomes normalized in the minds of young black men. So we internalize these interactions and basically criminalize ourselves, right? So with this, our behavior, which is our mind and our environment, structure our thinking, and our thinking dictates our actions. Our actions create our experiences, and ultimately our experiences constructs our reality. So our reality becomes like, wow, you mean to tell me that I'm a criminal, so i got to act this behavior out with this title that's been placed upon me. In reality, a lot of times, majority of us just want the same opportunities as anyone else when we, when we walk down the street or when we, when we interact. We need to ask ourselves a question, like, how does our educational system contribute to mass incarceration?
1: Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at our website at www.RustBeltRadio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew. Andres, A. Maria, David Langstaff, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.